This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Fight Back has been closely following the deadly COVID-19 outbreak at Roberta Place Long-Term Care Home in Barrie. All but one resident has contracted the virus with the UK variant in the mix. And more than half of the 129 residents have died. Now there is a $50 million proposed class action suit against the home's owners. They are being charged with negligence and a total failure to prepare and protect residents for the second wave everyone knew was coming. To discuss the developments, Libby Snymer was joined on Wednesday by Jane Medes, staff lawyer and institutional advocate at the Advocacy Center for the Elderly, and Gail Brock, lawyer of Brock Medical Malpractice Law, the firm representing family members in the lawsuit. The main allegations are of uh, negligence and gross negligence for for various uh, reasons, failing to cohort residents who are COVID positive and residents who are not COVID positive. So there's non-cohorting, there's inappropriate use of PPE, lack of PPE, failure to be um, ready for this second wave, uh, failure to uh, have proper testing, failure um, to properly instruct staff and have them tested uh, daily, having staff who are working with COVID-positive patients, uh, working with um, non positive patients and um, it, it's it's so widespread Libby um, the the allegations just go on and on Jane Medus you know when these allegations come up the homes usually say they make it sound like some kind of act of God there was nothing we could do uh-huh. these are older homes there we there's nowhere else for us to put these residents uh, our staff called in sick uh, what's your view of our of those I defense I guess well I mean you know this it might have been you know at the beginning of the you know covid in March last April last year there you know maybe had some um ability to have those kinds of comments um but certainly we're you know well into um uh, almost a year um, and those just don't fly. And in fact, um, Roberto Place knew that they had problems. They had orders as far back as September around their infection control. And so, you know, they already had been on notice um, to comply. They were unable to comply. And in fact, when the ministry went in in December to review that, they had to... Um, extend the period to meet the infection control because the home still hadn't done that. Um, Jarlet is a, you know, a large, you know, a fairly large company. Um, You know, it, uh, one of the things that the 
you know, the private sector says is, you know, we have the ability because we have these corporate offices and we can set policies across everything. Where were those policies? They knew there was a problem in September. Um, you know, they they couldn't meet it for December, and it's still clear from the inspection reports that there were some horrible things going on uh, with respect to infection control. So it, that that argument is is just wrong. Gail, can you uh, give us an idea just of uh, what's the process uh, going forward to try to get this certified, and, and what kind of timelines are we talking about? Lawsuits take a long time, unfortunately, Libby. We have to still prove the case, so there's a, a lot that we still have to do uh, aside from getting it certified. So, But yes, the, the, the main goal right now is to get the, the uh, class action certified and collect as much evidence as we can uh, regarding all of the individuals and the family members who have been affected um, by what has gone on there. As far as a time frame, this could take three, four years, depending on what the defense is and how much pushback there is from the defendants. Jane, anything you'd like to leave us with uh, quickly? Well, I think that people really need to be speaking to their uh, members of provincial parliament in order to really push um, for changes um, and to ensure compliance right now. And with this new variant, um, it has been, become even more critically important that all of the long-term care homes are complying um, and that the ministry is taking steps that they need, whether it's hiring, training and hiring more personal support workers, getting more nursing staff in, uh, whatever it takes um, to ensure the safety of the residents. Jane Medes, staff lawyer and institutional advocate at the Advocacy Center for the Elderly, and Gail Brock, lawyer of Brock Medical Malpractice Law, the firm representing family members in the lawsuit against Roberta Place in Barrie. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Now to a personal perspective related to Roberta Place. The mother of musician Jeremy Taggart is a resident at the nursing home in Barrie, which has been devastated by COVID-19. Jeremy joined Libby on Tuesday to tell his and his mom Beryl's story. I did hear about the outbreak around on the 8th. That was very concerning to me. They had been doing very well all last year in lockdown. Uh, being very strict with visitors, the the best that I could do was uh, wave from her because she's on the third balcony uh, from the parking lot for visits, and uh, she suffers from severe dementia, so conversations are difficult from that far away. I had respected how they had been keeping uh, the lockdown in place throughout the year, and when I heard the outbreak happened, I, I just you know I, I was struck with fear based on the last failures that we've seen from Halifax at Northwood to Montreal to Bob Cajun. So I I just kind of got really afraid. And I think it was probably the day two or three when um, I didn't see anybody coming in. I heard the military in the spring had been coming in. Base Borden's only 15 minutes away. There was nothing happened. There was no extra hands on deck. So I assumed as a family member that everything was okay. And uh, that obviously wasn't the case. And as soon as we were getting uh, updates in email form because their phone lines had been down, it was just the numbers were just getting doubling and tripling. 
And um, I found out my mom had it. And I think the Red Cross didn't come in to, until the 16th. What kind of a room is she in? How many other people? She was in a, a room with one other person. That's the other thing that was very concerning when I heard that their owner, uh, David Jarlett, actually admitted that they were not cohorting properly, that they were um, inundated and overwhelmed, and people were actually not properly uh, isolated. And that's, that's my biggest problem with this whole thing, is just the fact that there was no help from day one to help quarantine this virus properly. There was a lot of promises happening from Fullerton and Ford in terms of taking care of this and having people in place, but that's this this was not the case, and it was a, a real failure, and uh, it's going to keep on happening until something is uh, going to be done about it. Roberta Place is, is the subject of, of a big lawsuit that uh, they hope will be certified for class action, but that's, uh, you know, that doesn't re- result in anything anytime soon, obviously. No, and honestly, um, with that, I mean, it, 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 at the end of the day, our the problem is LTCs, not in in one in particular, and it's, the biggest problem is the fact there's no action from above on on, on this. There should be a a task force, an emergency task force. There's more than enough money to have trained doctors and staff at the ready for any time one of these outbreaks happens. There's six and a half billion dollars just sitting there that uh, otherwise goes into balance the budget next month. I mean, this is all right there in front of us on paper. The failure is the fact that there was no action and uh, now 63 lives have been lost and there's still more people that have it and it's just gone through the whole building. Uh, it was a complete failure in my opinion. I don't blame the people in the, in there and cl- class action suits are basically taking the owner and the place, that place in its, in its path. And I just feel that um, even though that might uh, be a, a small fix, there just needs to be serious policy changes that have to happen. And well, we know that takes a long time. What would you like to leave us with on this? Uh, I just think everybody has to kind of keep an eye on their local MPs and just fight uh, to, to have the, the right people in office that are going to take care of of, of the elderly popula- population. I mean, this, if this was uh, 100 kids, it would not have rolled out the same way. And that's the problem. Canadian musician Jeremy Taggart. His mother, Beryl Taggart, is a resident of Roberta Place in Barrie. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, will the new travel restrictions make a positive difference in reducing cases of COVID-19 and the new variants? We will discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Over the past week, new government-imposed travel restrictions have been placed on passengers coming through Canadian airports. All direct flights to the Caribbean and Mexico are now banned. International passengers arriving at Pearson Airport are now mandated to take a COVID test when they land and soon will have to quarantine at a government-designated hotel at their own expense for at least three days while awaiting test results. 
So will these measures be effective at containing COVID-19 along with variants of the virus? And will they stop people from traveling? And what about people who are already away and need to get back? Libby asked these questions of Dr. Frederick Demosh, director of the Ted Rogers School of Hospitality and Tourism Management, Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure, and Richard Smart, CEO and registrar of the Travel Industry Council of Ontario. All the large tour operators, I'm talking the Air Canada Vacations, Transat, Sunwing, uh, WestJet Vacations, they've all uh, recently, in the last couple of days, come out with what their policies are. Uh, uh, and working with TICO to, to get that communication out to consumers. And for anyone who has recently booked, say, say a spring break, despite the fact that these travel restrictions have been in place for some time now, um, the, with, with certain exceptions, for the most part, consumers are getting their money back in the original form uh, they paid for. So if they pay by credit card, they'll get a credit back to their, to their, to their credit card. Let's bring in Martin Firestone. You are in the insurance business. How has the announcement of, of these restrictions, how, how has it affected you? Yeah, most interesting. I'm getting two sort of groups happening here. I'm getting the group that are away now and either deciding when is this restriction coming in place with the three-day hotel quarantine. I may come back before. I want no part of this. The other group is saying, I want no part of it also. They're consistent on that, but they are suggesting they extend their current trip until such time that the restriction gets lifted. Therefore, they need me to try to get them an extension on their travel insurance. So that's where everybody's at at this point. Uh huh. And is it uh, easy? Is it feasible to get an extension on travel insurance? It is, with the understanding that if you've had a claim, an expectation of a claim, or seen a doctor, it adds a lot of problem to the ability to get it. So I guess to put it simply, if, if everything is good and no issues, I can get it. But having said that, if you have had a claim, many insurance companies will not offer additional extension. Let's bring in Dr. Dimash. What is all of this, first of all, doing to uh, your students? Are they starting to rethink a career in hospitality and tourism? Well, you know, some of them, those who graduated uh, recently have been uh, having to rethink a career. And, and um, you know, we're lucky that, uh, you know, they get a, uh, a degree in commerce. And so they have skills that are, that are transferable. But the main message we're trying to communicate to the students is that the travel and tourism industry is going to rebound. And uh, the industry will need people who are well-equipped, who are entrepreneurial, who have ideas, who are innovative, to help uh, restart the industry. Um, travel is, is something that people love to do and need to do. Uh, we need to go on vacation, but also we need to travel for business, to visit friends and family. So all those hospitality and travel services are there to stay. The question is, you know, they are likely to have to reinvent themselves. You know, there will be some opportunity for entrepreneurs, and um, that's the communication that we try to, to have with our students. I, I just want to reiterate the fact that people have to be very careful about traveling right now. Uh, the risk is not only catching the virus, but the risk is to be stuck somewhere and uh, get insurance, go through a travel advisor, and uh, hope for the best. Richard Smart. Travel is a, is, a, is, a, is a wonderful opportunity. The travel industry will recover. It's, it's a resilient uh, industry. Um, my, my key message is don't travel now unless you absolutely have to. Uh, if you do, travel safe, be informed, buy insurance, and be safe. And Marty? 
It will recover, but in fact, right now, access to the hospital overcapacity in some of these destinations is an absolute reason why you should not travel. And we will again, it will come back bigger and better than ever. Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure. Richard Smart, CEO and registrar of the Travel Industry Council of Ontario. And Dr. Frederick Demanche, director of the Ted Rogers School of Hospitality and Tourism Management. They were in conversation with Libby Snymer on Wednesday. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Thursday was World Cancer Day in a year when the pandemic is disrupting cancer diagnoses and treatments. The unknowns around COVID-19 are making a difficult experience even more stressful and potentially dangerous for patients, caregivers, and the medical professionals who provide treatment. Screenings are down, and so is the number of new cancer diagnoses, down 25 or 30 percent in some specialties. It means patients will present with cancer when their disease is more advanced and harder to treat. A Leger poll for the Canadian Cancer Survivor Network finds 55% of respondents reported having their appointments, tests, and treatments cancelled or postponed. These patients had to wait an average of 34 days to reschedule cancelled or postponed in-person appointments and 52 days to reschedule surgery and other procedures. To discuss this unusual year in cancer treatment, Libby, who is a two-time cancer survivor herself, was joined by Dr. Stephen Gallinger, clinician, scientist, and surgical oncologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Center, and Dr. Aaron Schimmer, director at the Research Institute, Princess Margaret Cancer Center, and a physician in hematology-oncology at Princess Margaret. So if you actually go back even to the first wave, that in the period of March, April, May, there were significant decreases in the amounts of treatment given as we prioritize resources, staffing, PPE, to care for the urgent increase in number of COVID patients. And you're right that we started to catch up a little bit in the summer as the uh, number of COVID cases declined. But again, with this rising in second wave, that, you know, there was a need again to prioritize available beds, staffing, et cetera, to care for the rising COVID patients. And that caused a decline in the number of surgeries that could be offered, almost that these were really uh, on the more elective side. And cancer surgeries, which although in some cases were impacted, it was less so than other areas. But look, having said that, if you're the patient who's been impacted, this is by no means a good situation and causes, at the very least, a fair bit of distress for people being affected. I can tell you, no one wants to have to be in a position to delay surgery, least of all surgeons like Dr. Gallinger. Dr. Gallinger, you specialize in pancreatic cancer, among other things, and I would think that everything to do with that very deadly disease, which uh, I had, is, is urgent. Yeah, I, th- I think Garen uh, explained it all really well, and I would just emphasize that we're kind of learning on the job. This is a new experience for all of us, um, so we're trying to keep up with all the pressures, either from the public, from public health, and then uh, you know the optics of delaying versus the, the scientific evidence for what matters. And so it very much has been a moving target, certainly in the f- spring, when there was, I would say, mass panic, uh, you know, we convened meetings and tried to figure out how we're going to prioritize 
patients, especially those with pancreatic cancer. And we were even considering and did consider and actually treated a few patients with chemotherapy first. Uh, we want, we look carefully at the evidence uh, and there, is, there are controversies in managing pancreas cancer and all cancers. So we tried to adapt and be as nimble as we could and we actually treated a few patients with chemotherapy first and then surgery later. But this may actually even be better. So there are a few uh, even benefits from this experience because we're learning alternative ways to treat patients that may be as effective or even more effective. We then, um, I think all the, all the hospitals in Ontario then quickly realize that uh, urgent cancer surgery like pancreas cancer surgery and others has to go on essentially. So unfortunately at the expense of other surgery, a lot of elective orthopedic surgery for example has been postponed uh, for a year and it may even be longer. But the bottom line is most of the urgent cancer surgery is being done. The system, it's, it's a clunky system. We can't see patients in person the way we used to and that obviously impacts the relationship with patients. Uh, their ability to ask questions and have them answered properly, but we're doing COVID tests on everybody that comes in for elective surgery. So it's been it's been painful and clunky, but I think cancer surgery for the most part uh, has been done uh, pretty much on time, and certainly the, the most urgent cases, like you mentioned, pancreas cancer, are getting done. Dr. Shiver, what would you like to leave us with? Well, maybe just a chance to thank all of my colleagues, my physicians, the nurses that we work with. I know how hard they're working to care for patients and really give a special shout out. We didn't talk about all the scientists and researchers who are really kind of a little bit behind the scenes who are also working tirelessly, not only on cancer research, but in many cases pivoted to COVID research, sometimes those behind the scenes heroes that are making such a difference. Okay. And Dr. Gallinger. I have nothing other than what's been said, but I also would just emphasize we haven't talked about it, the lack of our inability to do research the way we want to, especially clinical research, and I'm hoping uh, government agencies recognize that the cancer is still here and we still have to you know, keep the research enterprise uh, moving as, as best as we can despite the financial impact and obviously the requirement to spend a lot of money on COVID management. Uh, you know, Cancer research still has to keep rolling along too. Dr. Stephen Gallinger, clinician scientist and surgical oncologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Center, and Dr. Aaron Schimmer, director at the Research Institute, Princess Margaret Cancer Center, and a physician in hematology oncology at Princess Margaret. They spoke with Libby on World Cancer Day. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Vasa in Streetsville phoned about how masking is still sometimes a problem, let alone double masking. As I'm shopping, I see two store employees working and one talking to the other one. And I looked and took a second look. She had no mask, no shield. So I asked her, I said, excuse me, do you work here? Yes. I said, and you don't wear a mask? She says, I'm medically exempt. I couldn't believe it. And then I saw the store 
owner, and I told her about it. And she said, well, I can't fire her. I said, okay, but why is she out on the floor talking? And we know that when you speak, the spittle comes out. And we're told to do all these things, and an employee doesn't have to do it. I said, can you keep her in the back? She says, oh, I'll have a talk with her. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Dennis in Brampton, who phoned about his concerns with students beginning to return to in-person learning. I did hear the comment about mental health of children and the need to reopen the schools. Uh, That being said, I did see um, a report that 70% of the schools are in the highest risk areas, particularly in the GTA, York Region, etc. And from the beginning, I think I'm saying, and so has the program, that we're not doing nearly enough adequate testing uh, in the schools. And the protection for students and teachers in the schools themselves with regard to ventilation and distancing, simply not there. So I'm very concerned with the variants and what the reopening schools plan for the 16th and the GTA is going to have on the uh, general population. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown. Justin Eacock and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.